This podcast is brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. Thanks for listening. We now have a, a scripture reading. So today's passage is taken from Luke chapter 9, verse 1 to 17. So I'll give you some time uh, to take out your Bible. Um, if not, uh, you can also refer to the projection on the screen. Luke chapter 9, verse 1. I'm reading from the NIV. Right? Um, when Jesus had called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He told them, Take nothing for the journey. No stuff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, leave their town and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. So they set out and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and healing people everywhere. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on and he was perplexed because some were saying that John had been raised from the dead, others that Elijah had appeared, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago had come back to life. But Herod said, I beheaded John. Who then is this I hear such things about? And he tried to see him. When apostles returned, they reported to Jesus what they had done. Then he took them with him, and they withdrew by themselves to a town called Bethsaida. But the crowd learned about it and followed him. He welcomed them and spoke to them about the kingdom of God and healed those who needed healing. Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, Send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. He replied, You give them something to eat. They answered, We have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, Have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. The disciples did so. And everyone sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave to the disciples to distribute to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. This is the word of God. I'll now pass the time over to Pastor Andrew, who will um, explain today's passage to us. Okay, good morning everyone. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Hey, Father, we want to thank you so much for your word. And today as we read your word, we pray that it would really teach us who Jesus is that he is truly glorious and exalted, and all the more we need to trust in him, because he is the only one who can provide us with abundant life that satisfies. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Many years ago, when my first son was born, 
I decided that I better take life seriously and start thinking about saving money. So I went to speak to an uh, insurance agent about uh, buying an insurance policy and uh, the insurance agent was telling me about how I should buy this policy and how it would provide me with security and peace of mind. But also, in a few years down the road, it would provide me with a regular income stream. It would provide me with, with money and savings. It gave me lots of charts, impressive tables and statistics. After today, my son is now, how old you are now, Josh? About 29 right, or something, I can't remember. But anyway, up until today, I'm still paying money for this insurance policy. It doesn't provide me with income. It is very disappointing. But the disappointment that I feel is nothing compared to the disappointment that my wife's relative feels in Australia. So my wife's relative was suffering from pain. And so the relative went to see a doctor, a general practitioner in Australia. And the general practitioner said, hey, you know, it looks like you're quite serious, this illness. You better go to the hospital. I'm going to get you to do all these different tests and uh, scans. So my wife's relative did all the tests, went home. Didn't hear from the doctor after one week. Didn't hear back from the doctor after two weeks. So he thought to himself, you know, no news is good news, right? Well, finally he thought, well, maybe I should contact the doctor. So he contacted the doctor and the doctor said, oh, the scans and the tests show that you have advanced cancer. You need to go to the hospital right now and start your treatment. And so my wife's relative said, well, if it's so serious, why didn't you call me earlier? He said, I'm so sorry, I thought you were moving out of state and you were under the care of another doctor, so I just didn't follow up with you. So here, I trusted the insurance company to provide me with income and I was disappointed. My wife's relative was relying on the GP to provide him with good quality of care, but he's disappointed. And I think in life, we trust in people to give us things, to provide us with things, but ultimately, we can often be disappointed. And that's why today's passage is so important for us to listen to because it teaches us of the only one and ultimate provider who will give us life, abundant life itself, to satisfaction. Now, the first rule of reading the Bible is that we must always read the Bible in context. You cannot just read it by itself. It needs to be part of what comes before in the book itself. So today we're studying Luke chapter 9. And of all the books that we study, definitely in this chapter, we need to read it in context of what we have read so far. So last week, we studied Luke chapter 8. In Luke chapter 8, we read about how Jesus was preaching about the kingdom of God. Okay, And then soon, in quick succession, we learn about how Jesus did four big miracles. He calmed the storm. He cast out the demonic legion. He healed the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. He raised Jairus' young daughter from the dead. So if you look up here on the screen, you can see, right, that actually the whole of chapter 8 can really be summarized into two words. Just two words you can summarize the whole of chapter 8. Preaching and power. That's what we saw last week in chapter 8. Jesus was preaching the kingdom of God. He was exercising power. Now, keep that in mind as we look today at chapter 9. Because it says there, when Jesus called the twelve together, he gave them power and authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. He sent them out to preach the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. Now the main verbs that we see here in verse, chapter 9, verse 1 and 2 are the verbs called 
gave and sent. And fundamentally, what Jesus is doing here is he is giving them or delegating the power and the preaching that we've seen in Jesus in chapter 8. Okay, he's delegating them. In a sense, he's making them like mini Jesuses, mini Jesuses, right? He's like the representatives of Jesus. So he delegates his power. So in chapter 8, we see his preaching and power. So at the beginning of chapter 9, we see that he delegates his preaching and power to these 12, the, the apostles or the sent ones. Now, because of this, we see that Jesus then sends out for them to show his power and to preach the kingdom of God to the region. Now, as we look here, we see that Jesus, the apostles, they went from village to village preaching the gospel and healing people everywhere. So their ministry, in a sense, was both intensive and extensive. Right? It was intensive because they went from village to village, person to person, town to town, household to household. It was extensive. They went everywhere. Now, I already said we cannot read chapter 9 by itself, right? And so as we look at chapter 9, it's not as if Jesus woke up one morning and said, you know, I'm getting really tired. I feel like I need some people to help me to do this preaching business. I need these people to help me to do this healing. Because in Luke chapter 5, we already saw that when Jesus called the very, very first apostles, he called the 12 right from the beginning. When he called Peter, Simon Peter, when he called James and John, the very first of the apostles, he told them, from now on you will fish for people. So just as they were fishermen and they were fishing for fish and drawing them in, Jesus gives them a new job, right? He says, now instead of fishing for people, you will fish, sorry, fish for fish, you will fish for people, gather them in, and you will draw them into the kingdom of God. So right from the very beginning here in chapter 9, we see that uh, Jesus all along has always intended for the apostles to be delegated with his power, delegated with his preaching, for them to be fishers of men. So right at the very beginning, we see Jesus is this great provider. He seeks to bring as many people to come into his kingdom and to experience his power. Now, the structure of verse 1 to 6 uh, is actually uh, interesting, right? Because you can see by the red and the purple. So what we see here is a bit like a hamburger structure or a sandwich or what you call technically an inclusio. So verse 1 to 2 and verse 6 uh, is about Jesus commissioning them for the ministry and for the 12 apostles to conduct the ministry. But the meat in the middle, the burger, tells them about the manner of their ministry, how they are meant to go about this ministry. So the first thing he tells them is, take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra tunic. Now, you all know that, uh, you know, things are opening up. And so, with things opening up, I'm thinking, you know, I really want to go on a holiday, right? I haven't been on a holiday for so long. So, you know, I'm thinking of going to Phuket. So the first thing, you know, when you go to Phuket is, you know, you've got to look for your flights, right? Book your flights. When you book your flights, you always have that choice, right? Do you want luggage, you know, your luggage of 10, 20 kg or your luggage, you know, 10 kg, or maybe you want to go cheap, you just have hand luggage, right? 
Well, Jesus goes beyond Air Asia, Scoot, right? He tells his disciples, take nothing, right? Travel light. He doesn't want them to have any of the distractions of luggage. He wants them to move fast. He wants them to go far, trusting in God that, that they will be provided for by God, right? To be given money, to be given food, to be given lodging. Now, verse 4 is something of a surprise, okay? Verse 4 is something of a surprise. Because verse 4 says, Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that town. If people do not welcome you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that town as a testimony to them. Now, the local context was such where in the ancient world, when the Jews used to travel through a Gentile village, the Gentile village would be unclean to them, right? And the Jews would consider themselves clean. So as they passed through the Gentile village, oftentimes, symbolically, what would they do? They would shake the dust off their feet. So symbolically, what they were saying was, I'm leaving the uncleanness behind, right? I'm separating myself from the uncleanness. Like, I want nothing to do with your uncleanness. Even your dust also I don't want, right? That's how, that's how much I'm separating myself from you. Now, Jesus takes that same image and he applies it to the 12 apostles. He said, look, if people reject you, I want you to shake the dust off your feet as a sign of rejection, separation. Even the dust of your feet, I also don't want from you. Now, the reason is because when people rejected the apostles, they weren't rejecting Simon Peter, the apostle, because, you know, they thought that he had a a big nose, right? No, we don't want any big nose people in this town. Or they didn't want Simon Peter because Simon Peter was particularly smelly because he was a fisherman. They were rejecting Simon Peter because he was a mini Jesus. They were rejecting the preaching of the kingdom of God. They were rejecting the power of Jesus which Jesus had delegated to them. And so what was happening was when they shook the dust off their feet, in a sense, it was a testimony against this town, against this village, against these people, that Jesus, Jesus wanted nothing to do with them. Jesus was separating himself from them. Jesus was rejecting them. Now, this is serious business here, right? This is no play-play, right? Because if Jesus rejects you, if Jesus separates himself from you, that means that you are outside the kingdom of God. You are outside of salvation. Now, sometimes when I speak to people, they say to me, oh, you know, don't worry about me. You know, I don't need to hear about Jesus. I'll be able to get to heaven myself because I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I do good things. But actually, when you apply verse 5 to them, if you do not welcome Jesus, if you do not welcome the preaching of Jesus, then Jesus says to you, I reject you too. I'm separate from you, right? I no longer want any part of you. Now, if Jesus rejects you, you cannot go into the kingdom of God because you can only go into the kingdom of God through a relationship with Jesus. You're not saved because you're a good person or because you do good works. It is only because you have a relationship with Jesus. So the dangerous thing and the scary thing is that if Jesus 
and his apostles say that they do not welcome you, they are separate from you, they reject you. There is no way you can be saved. No way you can go to heaven. Now, the passage then goes on in verse 7. Now Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was going on. That shows us that the ministry, sorry, the ministry of the, the apostles was effective intensively and extensively, right? Because Herod heard about all that was going on, all the preaching, all the teaching, all the power of the miracles. Now this word here, tetrarch, is literally the word like king, but it's not a real, real king. It's king appointed by the Romans. He's like a governor. So Herod Antipas, okay, he was Herod Tetrarch of Galilee and Perea. So Herod the Tetrarch, it says there, was perplexed. He was puzzled. He was wondering, who is this that I hear such things about? Who is this man? Who is this Jesus, right, fundamentally? Now as we've been going through the book of Luke, this is not a new question, right? As we've been going through the book of Luke, this is a question that keeps bubbling in the background as we've been reading in the book of Luke. There are lots of perplexed, wondering, and puzzled people asking, who is this man? So, in chapter 7, verse 20, you remember John the Baptist was wondering and perplexed and he sent people to come to Jesus to ask, are you the one who was to come? Again, in Luke chapter 7, verse 49, do you remember when Jesus went to the, the house of Simon the Pharisees? The, uh, Simon the Pharisee, the other Pharisees asked, who is this who even forgives sins? And last week, we saw the disciples asking, who is this who commands even the winds and the waves and they obey him? So as we've been going through the book of Luke, there's a lot of perplexed, wondering and puzzling people asking this question, who is this? And so as we come to chapter 9, it's not as if this is a question that's being asked for the very first time. This question that Herod is asking is actually a question which is asked more and more and more and more and needs to be answered, right? It needs to be answered desperately. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? And so, as we come to this section, we now see the popular opinion about Jesus. Uh, what the crowd say about Jesus what their opinion of Jesus is. So, some say he is John, John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Now, who is John the Baptist? As we've been reading in the book of Luke, John the Baptist was the one who was to prepare the way for the Lord. He was to make all the crooked roads straight and the rough way smooth. He's the one who, in a sense, is the preparer. So is Jesus the great preparer? Is he the one preparing the way for God? Or is Jesus Elijah? In the last book of the Old Testament, in the second last verse, it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. Is Jesus this end-time prophet? The end-time prophet who comes before God comes. Or is Jesus the old-time prophet. Right? We saw already in Luke chapter 7, people were saying, you know, Jesus is like this 
all great prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah. The all-time prophets who called people back to God. Now, as we've been looking at the, uh, the book of uh, Luke, are these categories appropriate for Jesus? Is he the preparer? Is he the end-time prophet? Or is he the old-time prophet? Well, as we've been going through the book of Luke, when we looked at chapter 8, we saw that Jesus had done great things, right? He calmed the storm, cast out the demon legion, healed the woman bleeding for 12 years, raised the little girl from the dead. In light of what we know, Jesus cannot be the preparer or the end-time prophet or even the old-time prophet because he must be the Lord, right? He is the very one who brings God's salvation. So the problem with the popular opinion was that even though they had high estimation of Jesus, they thought that, you know, he's like John, the great preparer, Elijah, the great end-time prophet, or like Isaiah, the old-time prophets. These are like the highest estimations or valuations or ratings that people could have given you in the Asian world, right? If someone came up to you and said, oh, you are like Elijah, I mean, like, that's it, no? That's the ceiling. But the problem is, as we have read through the book of Luke, we know that Jesus is even bigger and stronger. He is even more glorious and exalted. All these categories of, of John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, Isaiah, they are too low, they are too puny, they are too small, an estimation of Jesus. Jesus is much, much greater than that. So a few years ago, uh, I had an interesting meeting. I, someone met me in a hotel in Bugis Junction. We had a cup of coffee, and he's a foreigner. He wanted to speak to a pastor. And so he wanted to find out about Christianity. So I asked him, I said, what do you think of Jesus? You know, who do you think Jesus is? And he said, oh, Jesus is a very wise man. Very wise man. But then he went on to then tell me that, that you know, Jesus was a wise man, together with what he assumed were other wise men. So in this guy's eyes, Jesus was exalted. He's a very wise man together with maybe two or three individuals in the world. But I told him that actually Jesus is not just a wise man, right? He's much, much more than just a man and just a wise man. He is God and he is powerful and he can do all these things, much more than just a wise man. And therefore... As we've gone through the book of, of Luke, especially as we go through uh, Luke 9 now, it's actually preparing us for this last, last miracle. Right? Now, in the book of Luke, if you, if you look at your Bibles, right, or for those of you who are at home, you're looking at the computer, you notice that all these chapters, we're doing Luke chapter 9 today, right? In the original manuscript of Luke, there are no chapters. The chapters were added later right, for convenience for us. So really, what we're seeing today is this last miracle is actually part of the series that began in chapter 8. It doesn't kind of like stand by itself. It's kind of like a progression, right? And this miracle, even though to us it may seem a bit not as impressive as the other four, is the only miracle which is captured in all the other four Gospels. It's the only miracle where 
Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all capture this miracle and they all capture it in great detail. So in their eyes, this is a, a very, very important miracle, isn't it? Now, why would all, all four miracle, uh, gospel writers want to, to take time to, to capture this, this miracle? So exactly what is it happening here? This last miracle. Well, as we saw last week, in the narration of the miracles, it often fo- offers, follows sorry, a same structure. The structure is, it tells us the setting of the miracle. There's a threat that is portrayed and there's a rising hopelessness to the situation. And we see that exactly the same here in this last miracle. So what do we see here? We really need to get into the setting, I think, because if not, we just think it's a very, it's a, you know, like plain, generic miracle. What's the big deal, right? Not very impressive at all. Okay, so what's the setting? This picture is of modern-day Bethsaida. I've never been to Israel in my life, so I, I, can, I only have trust that that is Bethsaida, but why would anybody lie? Anyway, so if you notice here in Bethsaida, what do you notice here as you look at this picture? No tall buildings, huh? No supermarket, nothing. So even today, Versailles seems like quite a remote place, right? You can imagine 2,000 years ago, there were all these people there with Jesus sitting in the side of the mountain. So it's a remote place. Not many people there, not much infrastructure, no shops, okay? And we know from the passage that there were at least 5,000 men. So I googled, a concert where there were 5,000 people. So this is what it looks like. Okay, this is somewhere, I don't know where it is, but there's 5,000 people in this crowd, okay? Looks like a lot of people. They look like ants there, right? So that's a lot of people. But you, I want you to think a bit more about what was said in the passage. It records for us in the passage there were 5,000 men. 5,000 men. We must assume that there must have been women and children there as well. I mean, I don't think it was a men-only affair, right? I mean, like, there must have been women and children there as well. So this is an even bigger concert hall with even more people. And this is how many people were probably around that day with Jesus. And so, we see the setting. Remote place, a lot of people. Now, what's the problem? Late in the afternoon, the twelve came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we are in a remote place here. So what we see here is that it's getting really late, getting dark, getting cold as it does in the Middle East. These people, when they came to find Jesus, they obviously were not prepared to stay as long as they did, but they were there now and they don't have enough food. Okay, that is a problem, right? There's a threat. Jesus elevates the threat and the, and the tension. He says, you give them something to eat. He says to the disciples. They, they, they answered, you know how much food we have? We only have five loaves of bread and two fish, you know? How is that possible? So here we see this impossibility, right? Of feeding like five to 10,000 people with five loaves of bread and two fish. Now, I want you to think about that for a moment. Over the last two years, I've developed some bad habits. 
One of the bad habits is ordering food online. Expensive, huh? right? Okay. Now, when you order for your family, usually you buy packs meals, lah. It's cheaper that way, right? Rather than buying four one packs meals, it's cheaper to buy a four packs meal, right, for everybody. So here, there's a four packs meal for Kentucky Fried Chicken. Two burgers, two fries, six pieces of chicken. Here is a four-pack meal for McDonald's. Four burgers, two fries, or four burgers, uh, three fries. Okay. Now, how many packs meal is five loaves of fish, or five loaves of bread, and two fish? I mean, at the most, that's like a two-person meal, a two-packs meal, right? Or, or actually, really, it's a one-packs meal if you've seen how, many, how much young people can eat, right? Okay? So the question is, this is impossible, right? This is an impossible situation. You want to feed like five to 10,000 people with a one-packs meal. But let's read what happens. The disciples did so. They sat them down in groups of 50. And everybody sat down. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke them. Then he gave them to the disciples to set before the people. They all ate and were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. Now I want us to pay attention, okay, because I think in the English it, it, it flattens it out. The word that is really emphasized in the original language is the word all. All. Okay? They all ate. Okay? All is put in a really prominent position. They all ate. So one packs meal fed 5,000. One packs meal became five packs. No, 5,000 packs, sorry. One packs meal became 5,000 packs. But it's not as if each person had like one fingernail of food, right? Because the all also modifies the satisfied. All ate and all were satisfied. All had enough. All, like, in a sense, had to unbuckle their, their belt to, 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 you know, to expand their waistline. But that's not all, right? Because all were ate, all were satisfied, and picked up 12 basketfuls of leftovers. Now, this basketfuls is not like your picnic basket but it's like the laborer's basket in the ancient world, like what they used to use to carry stones or carry like their grain from the, the harvest field. So think like the baskets that you see the durians coming in. You know the durian baskets, how big they are, right? So that's how much food was left over. Something miraculous happened, right? You had one packed meal of five loaves and two fish, feed 5,000 men, plus 1,000 plus women and children, and you end up with 12 basketfuls of those durian baskets of fish and bread. Now, this is amazing. I mean, whatever way you cut it, this is truly, truly amazing, right? So what does it show of Jesus? Now, I said already earlier on, right, that Luke chapter 9, this miracle, is part of a series of miracles. So the first miracle is to show Jesus' power over nature when he calms the storm. 
The second miracle is Jesus' power over evil and the demonic when he cast out the legion demoniac. If the third miracle was Jesus' power over the disease, over the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, the last miracle was the power over death in raising up Jairus' 12-year-old daughter, young daughter, then what is this last miracle about? Well, the last miracle really is a provision miracle. Jesus has the power to provide. He is like the great provider. He provides in abundance. He provides to satisfaction. He provides to full. So the question was, who is this man, right? Who is this man? He is the one who provides to satisfaction and abundance. But I think there is more to it, right? Because as we look at this passage, it does bring us back to another time where there was a very, very similar situation. When God brought His people out of Egypt through the desert into the promised land, the people also were in a remote place. They were all hungry. And God also provided bread to everyone's satisfaction. It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Each one is to gather as much as he needs. And at the end, each one gathered as much as he needed. So what we see here is that what Jesus is doing has only ever been done by God. Right? There's a parallel between the two great miracles, the feeding in the desert, a remote place, provision of bread, all satisfied, to Jesus in Bethsaida, providing bread and all being satisfied. So the lesson that we're really meant to see here is that Jesus is God. He has the power of God to provide in abundance, to give life to the very full. That's why I remember once I was talking to someone and I was trying to share Jesus with, with this person and this person said to me, oh, you know, I don't want to go to heaven. You know why? All my friends are in hell. You know, all my good friends are in hell. So I want to go to hell too to have fun with them. But that's really foolish, right? Because if Jesus is the one who is the provider of all good things, why do you think that in hell you can have things like enjoyment and fun? Because Jesus, the great provider, will not be in hell providing these fun and enjoyable things for you to do in hell. So sometimes, you know, children ask this question. You know, in, pizza, you know, in heaven will there be uh, pizza? Uh, you know, in heaven, will I be able to uh, play football? Well, we don't really know whether you can have pizza in heaven or play football in heaven. But what we do know is that in heaven, there will be overflowing satisfaction. There will be abundant life because Jesus, the great provider, will be there. Now, because Jesus is the great provider, we then understand that what we see here in this miracle is consistent to what Jesus has been doing in the book of Luke. You see, earlier on the book of Luke already, we've seen right, all these miracles of Jesus and seen that he's done only what God can do. And therefore, because he is God, as we look back 
to the earlier chapters in Luke, we can see how he is able to do the things and to give these things that he promises to give. So remember in Luke chapter 5, there was this wonderful miracle where Jesus made the paralytic walk. But Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, remember? And he says, look, by, by getting you to stand up, I'm actually showing you your sins are forgiven. Jesus provides forgiveness of sins. Why? Because he is God. In the same way, we saw earlier Jesus gives the secrets of the kingdom of God. Why? Because again, this miracle shows that he is able to provide because he is God. And again, earlier on in Luke, it was prophesied that he is the salvation. He is the one who gives salvation to all people. Why? As this miracle shows, because he is God. Only God is able to do the things that Jesus said that he gave in those earlier chapters. So here, as we see Jesus doing these things, and we look back, we see, yes, Jesus is the provider. Not just of the abundant life, but salvation, forgiveness, and the kingdom of God. In conclusion, I want to uh, end with a, quite a profound and deep statement that I read many years ago in a book by C.S. Lewis. And so C.S. Lewis said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. So what C.S. Lewis is really saying here is that in ourselves, we have a great many desires, right? Uh, we, we desire many things. We have a yearning for great many things which are unsatisfied in this world. A desire for meaning, a desire for significance, a desire for eternity, a desire for, 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 for love. And many times, the world cannot provide us with satisfactory uh, you know, results to these desires. We cannot meet these desires in this world. But we know that on the other side, when we go to heaven and Jesus, our great provider, is there for eternity. All of these yearnings, all of these desires will be met because Jesus, the great provider who provides the abundant life to all satisfaction, He will be there and He will give us all these things. So I hope that as we study today's passage and as we understand it more and more, as we understand who Jesus is and what He provides, that even though we may be disappointed with the things of this world, when we look to Jesus, when we know our eternal destination, we will know that Jesus will provide us with all these things and more. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we truly want to, to ask you to fill our minds and our hearts with a knowledge of Jesus, that he is much, much greater than just a prophet or a teacher or a wise man. Indeed, as we have seen today, he is God, he is Son of the Most High. He is the one who provides all good things to satisfaction and the abundant life. And so, dear Father, as we come before you today, may we not put our hope in the things of this world which are destined to disappoint and to not satisfy, but rather only look to your Son, Jesus Christ, who is able and willing 
to give all good things to us. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast brought to you by Bethany Trinity Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at busypc.sg.